breast cancer. Those are two words your patients don't want to hear and news that you don't want to deliver. Unfortunately for one in eight American women, it's a truth they'll have to face in their lifetime. And the risks are clear. Besides being female, the two major risk factors for developing breast cancer are advancing age and family history. In fact, about 80% of women diagnosed with invasive breast cancer are age 50 and older. And while family history of the disease is an important risk factor, up to 80% of women diagnosed with breast cancer don't have one. Unfortunately, many women still have misperceptions about who is at risk. They think, I don't have a family history of breast cancer, so I don't need to worry. My mom had breast cancer, but I'm only 43. The good news is that with early detection, we can try to reduce the risk of breast cancer mortality. Through awareness and education, we hope to improve patients' willingness to be screened for breast cancer. To help in this effort, Lilly has created the Strength in Knowing Breast Cancer Awareness Program and website. It's designed to educate women about their individual risks and provide a means for them to share this knowledge with others. At strengthinknowing.com, women can hear from professionals as they discuss the importance of knowing the risks of breast cancer, find out about events they can attend in their city, and help spread the message. The resources may also be helpful to you and your practice. There is strength in knowing about the risks of breast cancer. So spread the word today. Visit strengthinknowing.com and tell your patients to visit too. I didn't realize I was at risk until I visited. I told my sister, my mother, and my aunt. This program is sponsored by Eli Lilly and Company. Answers that matter. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lauren Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. The majority of patients tolerate and respond to treatment with the bisphosphonate, dietary calcium, exercise, and smoking cessation. Many patients, however, are not candidates for a bisphosphonate or fail bisphosphonate treatment. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. Today we are joined by internationally recognized osteoporosis expert, Dr. Murray Favis, a professor of medicine at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine, author of over 100 scientific articles, 65 book chapters, and director of the University of Chicago Bone Program to discuss emerging therapies for osteoporosis. Dr. Favis, welcome. Thank you. Well, we all know the patient. She either can't take a bisphosphonate, she doesn't want to take a bisphosphonate, HRT isn't an option, she's had minimal response to other medications, she turns to you and wants to know what else is there, what is on the horizon. What is up and coming that you're personally excited about? Well, the pipeline from the pharmaceutical companies is really busy generating some very new novel agents that are in varying stages of testing and development to mention a couple of them, the one that's probably closest to being completed in terms of the fracture trials, which is the phase three studies looking at the primary endpoint of being fracture reduction, the one most closely ready for scrutiny would be denosumab. Denosumab is a humanized monoclonal antibody against a rank L. A rank L is a molecule that regulates the um, development and proliferation and activity of osteoclasts. And so to 
the monoclonal antibody essentially takes rank L out of the circulation and away from its actions to cause more osteoclastic activity, and in doing so, reduces uh, bone turnover and bone resorption. In the phase two studies, uh, denosumab showed very substantial increases in hip and spine bone density. And this is a twice-yearly subcutaneous injection, is my understanding? Yes, that's the way it's being tested presently. And how soon do you think it will be available? I believe that the phase three fracture studies uh, have yet to be completed, so that I would say it's probably be another year or two. But there are clinical trials ongoing? Well underway, Well underway. Now, of course, zeledronic acid was recently approved as a once-yearly intravenous therapy for treatment of osteoporosis. Where do you see denosumab fitting in versus zeledronic acid? I think a lot of it's going to depend on the efficacy of denosumab in reducing fractures. I think the jury's still out there. That is the pivotal question, I think, that you pose, and I don't know that we can answer it until we see fracture data. And head-to-head studies, I would imagine, between the two. That would be very nice, although there has yet to be a head-to-head study in which fractures have been the endpoint. Meaning that BMD is usually the endpoint rather than fractures? Yes, that's right. Would that be just because practically you can't wait for fracture? The size of a bone density comparison study, you can number the patients in the hundreds, 400 or 600. The number of patients would be required to be able to see a difference in two agents With respect to fracture rates, it could be thousands and thousands. Is there any concern with RankL because it functions within the immune system that there might be potential infectious complications? Well, there's great interest in seeing the potential uh, complications, side effects that should come out of the uh, phase three trial. So that's very important. Uh, We've not had an agent of this kind in the osteoporosis field. So we don't really know what to expect. And so not only are we looking for efficacy, but we have to look very closely at potential adverse events in this phase three study. And to your knowledge, have there been any significant adverse events? In the phase two study, the agent was very well tolerated with no significant trends uh, towards infection. There were uh, some cancers in each of the therapeutic groups, but there wasn't any significant difference. And as far as costs, any idea? Well, this is going to, again, uh, be a variable. Uh, These agents are The use of them is going to be very cost-sensitive, and so that will be up to the company to position it. If the cost is favorable, then it may be competing as a first-line agent. So we're going to hear a lot more about that. Now, strontium renalate, am I saying that properly? My understanding is that that it's available for use in Europe for treatment of osteoporosis. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, uh, strontium is an interesting element because it localizes in bone just uh, as does calcium. You know, it's next to the periodic table. It's right next to calcium. I didn't remember that, but thank you. (laughs) And so it is actually detected by the DEXA scanners as a heavier calcium, and so it gives higher readings uh, for bone, people who've been treated with strontium. And this is kind of a falsely elevated number, the bone density is really falsely elevated because it's due to the elemental weight of uh, strontium compared to calcium and not truly an increase in bone. So it doesn't sound like this is one of the ones that you're really excited about having access to. I think there are some potential challenges that would have to be overcome to monitor strontium therapy, but I think the biggest barrier to its use in the United States is that there's no financial incentive for a company to develop it as an agent, to go through all of the FDA requirements for its use. 
You're listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Murray Favis. And of course, we're talking about up-and-coming emerging therapies for osteoporosis. What about the oral calcium-sensing receptor antagonists? Well, these agents are designed to kind of fool the parathyroid gland into secreting more parathyroid hormone so that with the idea that one could achieve with endogenous parathyroid hormone what's been demonstrated with injections of parathyroid hormones, such as with teriparatide. So the idea is if you give an agent that binds to the calcium sensing receptor on the surface of the parathyroid cells, the parathyroid will think that the blood calcium is low and secrete more parathyroid hormone, which in turn will stimulate bone cells. And where are we in terms of clinical trials? Is this something that we should know about that we're going to hear more about? Well, I think this is going to take a much longer time to evolve. These agents are not well into any clinical trials at this time. And then there's the cathepsin K inhibitors. Anything we should know about those? Well, there's a fair amount of animal studies that have been done to show uh, that these cathepsin K inhibitors can increase bone mass and there will be ongoing clinical trials with it. It looks like those are underway, and so we'll, we'll have to just wait and see what they show. It really sounds like the one that we really need to know about and that we're going to hear a lot more about is denosumab, that that's going to be on the forefront of osteoporosis treatment. Yes, I would say in the next year or so, that's on the horizon, and we'll be hearing more and more about it. But let's deal with what we have right now. And given that most people are familiar with bisphosphonate treatments and calcium diet, et cetera, what do you think most clinicians are missing out there? What is there not enough emphasis on in order to get the maximum results from the treatments that we now have available to us? I think the biggest impact has been the appreciation that half of our adult population in the United States is vitamin D depleted. Uh, Vitamin D has been taken for granted, if you will, for a long time. We've all been told that Foods are fortified with vitamin D, and you can get vitamin D and multivitamins, and it comes with the calcium supplements, and we just are rich in vitamin D, and we don't need to worry about it. Just within the last three or four years, it's become quite apparent and has caught most all of us by surprise at the extent to which the population has low vitamin D. Uh, That's also been coupled with the appreciation that what we have generally been recommending in terms of adequate vitamin D intake is probably inadequate. So what is adequate? There has not been any official change in the recommendations that would come out of Washington. However, the field, the uh, scientists, clinical investigators, epidemiologists working in the bone field, feel that the vitamin D intake should be in the 1,000 to 2,000 units per day range at the least. And how does someone get that? Of course, there are sources of vitamin D, mainly from the calcium supplements that we use, should always select a calcium tablet with vitamin D in it. There are, most multivitamins have some vitamin D, but one needs to probably add to that. And there are now over-the-counter vitamin D3 preparations that have 1,000 units per tablet that are being used more and more now in recent uh, months and during the past year. But I think we're all aware that the time to attack the vitamin D problem, if you will, is long before someone has significant bone loss. Is this something that you think there needs to be increasing awareness of pediatricians to start even with young women that they must get vitamin D? Yes. We have to come to terms with the widespread use of sunscreen to prevent uh, skin cancers. That's a major contributing factor to the decline in vitamin D levels in our population. 
One of the other ideas is that we eat a diet that's fortified with vitamin D. And when I ask a group of physicians, what foods have vitamin D? Everybody says milk. And milk is one of the only foods that is fortified, but it only has 100 units per 8-ounce glass of milk added to it. So what foods do have vitamin D? Uh, aside from cod liver oil, which is <laughs> not your usual. <laughs> yes. Uh, some of the fish have small amounts, but not worth toting up. Your mercury levels, of course, you know, it's pick your poison. That's right. And there is now the calcium fortified orange juice that has some vitamin D in it. But aside from a very select small number of uh, foods, so some cereals, there's been attempts to add vitamin D. One really cannot find it in the diet, as opposed mm-hmm. to calcium, in which one can find calcium-rich foods in the diet. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lawrence Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health.